0: this is iaq radio indoor air quality radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry with your host radio joe hughes and the z-man Cliff and now radio joe hughes
1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, May 3rd, 2019 or something like that. I'm losing track of the year anymore. We've got a great interview today, John Downey. We're calling this an intimate interview with the cleaning industry's original, the life and times of John Downey, a trailblazer, troublemaker, and buckeye. Uh, So we're going to look forward to it. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee
0: sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
1: That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now
0: you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlot at cs.com, or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified enthalpy as the property of thermodynamic system that is equal to the system's internal energy plus the product of its pressure and volume therein. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, May 3rd, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the Solution Chemistry Company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. What former Ohio State football coach also coached two NFL teams? Back to you, Joe. Hmm. Okay, today we've got John Downey. John is the Executive Director of Siri, the
1: Cleaning Industry Research Institute. He is also the fourth-generation president and owner of Downey's Carpet Care of Granville, Ohio. Also the founder of Clean Facts Magazine, a longtime industry trade publication he sold in 1999. He has been a longtime industry association leader volunteer, and member of numerous committees and board of directors. His industry connections are second to none, and he is a respected as a man of his word that listens to both sides of an issue prior to making his own decisions on the proper decision to take. John, do we have you online?
3: Sure do, Joe. Thank you right. for the have, John, You know, we've had you
1: before, um, but in kind of different contexts. Um, today we want to get into your history and, uh, your family history a little bit, too. I think it's, it's something that people can learn a lot from. Uh, I found it interesting reading uh, the little kind of autobiography. You wrote um, four, five, six pages. I thought it was very
2: interesting. Uh, Cliff, I think what I'd like to do is let you start this off. Okay, good. Thanks. Uh, hey, John, thanks for joining us today. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, I I think in order to put things into context, you know, I don't know anyone personally with deeper roots in the cleaning industry than you. So what I'd like you to do, if you could take us back to the very beginning about how your family got involved in the cleaning industry and and when and where.
3: Sure. Be happy to do that. I think that story kind of uh, is what captured Joe here. Um, about a week ago when we had a, a conversation with some people from Ohio State, as I said then, and Joe was kind of flabbergasted, I am a son of a son of a son of a carpet cleaner. Uh, our And my kids are sons of sons of sons of sons of carpet cleaners. So uh, we go. We trace our uh, history in the business to 1897. So it's what's been 122 years. And the interest. One of the interesting things about that is that when uh, the first John M. Downey uh, got involved in the carpet cleaning business, he went to work for his brother-in-law, whose name was Martin. And today, and 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 he went to work for Martin. I think it was maybe 18. 89 or 1892 something like that and today both companies still aren't are in existence in columbus ohio martin carpet cleaning and john m downey carpet cleaning so uh, the other thing i said to joe that uh, i think made an impression is we were in carpet cleaning before there was carpet (laughs) real visionaries
2: (laughs) (laughs) True visionaries. <laughs> well, let, let, let's talk about really your direct connection. Then I think a little bit, you know, perhaps with, uh, you know, with your father and, and that business, and you know what led you to go into it.
3: You know, I always just felt I would end up running the family business. So that, and far, as far as me getting into it, you know that that I just thought that was what would you know, what was my destiny? And it's interesting that how, what we think our destiny is and, and what it actually is are not necessarily, you know, what, where we're led over time is not necessarily the same. Um, Dad was, and and, if I, I'll go back even if I could briefly to the original stuff, my uh, great-grandfather, who I never knew. I never knew my grandfather either. Uh, my great-grandfather uh, had three companies, very very entrepreneurial. He had a bakery, and in the back room, he had a boxing ring. And, and maybe another time, we'll talk about the Downey boxers. I had uh, three great-uncles who boxed professionally. One boxed for the World's Middleweight championship. Uh, and then behind the boxing ring, there was a rug cleaning plant or area. So he he had a very uh, he had a, his own mini conglomerate. Uh, and as the as years went by, um, he actually he died or he his wife died, and then uh, he remarried a woman who. Didn't really get along with his kids. He had eight kids, which my dad also had eight kids. I have nine, um, and uh, they didn't really get along. And when when he died, he left the business to my grandfather, but his stepmother contested the will, so there was a brouhaha, and she got the phone number, and he got the name. So or oh no, she got the name, he got the phone number. So uh there was a split in the family then there were subsequent splits in the family business over the years since um, the the my my grandfather was <laughs> my grandfather was a bit of a drunk uh he was a good <laughs> businessman and um but you know, he was, he was a better drinker. And uh, dad used to tell the story. And I I think this is pretty interesting about uh, our grandfather's business during the depression. And that was, um, you know, dad said, they never, they never had a problem earning a living during the depression, as some I learned from. And grandpa, dad's memory of grandpa's business was driving through the streets of Bexley, which was a high-income area in Columbus back in the day, still is, actually, uh, on, a, on the back of a flatbed truck. Grandpa was, was driving, and he had a microphone or a, a megaphone, if you will, uh, and they dr- drive slowly down the street and say, it's Downies. Bring out your rugs. It's downies! bring out your rugs. And every, you know, about every couple times a block, somebody would come to the door and wave at them, tell them to stop, and they'd run in and they'd get the rugs and come back out. And uh, he had a very, very successful business that way.
1: You know, I didn't, I didn't realize, I, you say you never met your grandfather?
3: I never met He died a couple years before I was born.
1: But it was obvious in your writing that he was a—he had a big influence on you. At least I, that was the impression I got. Um, what? Where did you learn about your grandfather from your father telling you stories, or how did that work?
3: Yeah, uh, my father telling stories, my aunts and uncles telling stories. Uh, there were, um, well, he was a—he was a colorful man. <laughs> i'm not sure that, i'm not sure that he he had a bit of an impression but i'm not sure it was entirely positive um however you know, in fact there there's some stories we aren't going to talk about here that were pretty negative about my grandfather but um the the thing about him was there were a lot of things in dad that came through his father and that I recognized in dad and, and some of them for good and some of them not so good. Uh, the drinking was also a problem that afflicted my father and a lot of the Irish. So, um, the, again, it was, it was those stories. I, I knew my grandmother on dad's side. She lived until, uh, the late 1960s oh. and she, she was just a kindly old woman. Uh, and, um, you know, just, but at that point, I don't remember ever talking to her about um, grandpa. Talked to dad. My mother actually liked uh, my grandfather a lot.
1: Interesting, John.
3: So I'm I'm just curious
1: about the boxing side of things. What happened <laughs> to the boxing ring? Did that go away or did you do a little boxing in your day?
3: I did not. Uh, well, I shouldn't say I did not. Actually, we did a little boxing in the basement when we were kids, but I, I never took it up in any significant way.
0: Okay.
3: Um, my my one brother, Mike, in particular, is was in his day a accomplished fighter. Uh, I was about the only one that ever beat him up because I'm older than him. <laughs> <laughs> And and when we were both teenagers, I think I was sixteen or seventeen. He was a year younger. I still remember this day. It was the last time we ever fought because I did I did not beat him. So, <laughs> once that happened, nope, no more fighting. I had uh, turned. <laughs> well, what you know?
1: It sounds like your grandfather was a pretty uh, interesting. Uh, business owner that, you know, had different marketing and, and advertising, you know, uh, innovations. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the innovations in advertising and subcontracting, etc., that came through the family?
3: Well, that was actually my dad. That wasn't my yeah. grandpa. That was dad. Um, yeah, dad is, you know, and one of the questions ahead of time that Cliff asked about was people that... uh were influencers on me and people I admire. My father would be one. I I think he's uh, probably the most innovative man that I've ever known well Um, and is responsible for an awful lot of things that may not, not all of them are considered good, but you know, I, I, I know his heart and I know that what he did was intended to be for the best. And I think all in all it was um but he dad probably the the most significant thing dad came up with is what he called flat rate pricing and we today call room pricing and he came up with that in the early 1960s um as he was trying to figure out a way to merchandise carpet cleaning and and uh, build a larger market for carpet cleaning up until that time there really weren't any large companies. Everybody the model, which is still accepted today as one of the models was, you know, you, you would advertise to get leads and then you'd go out and you would do estimates. And from the estimate, if you were a good salesman, you'd get work and, and, and build a business that way. Uh, Dad thought that there needed to be a way to, um, promote the business and sit in a um, successfully using mass media and um, he came up with different ideas and the one that really really worked was room price room pricing or as I said he called it flat rate pricing <laughs> this was in the early 60s and he would he advertised he would advertise on the radio he had a great radio voice and he advertised on the radio in Columbus uh, any size living room and hall for 1995. Any size living room, dining room and hall for 2995. Other wow. rooms were priced by the square foot, but the, that was the pricing, and um, it worked like a charm. I, I I can't rem I I can't remember exactly what the numbers are right now, but I remember him talking about how he was going to consider the um. Uh, he had to get a certain rate of response within the first 24 hours to continue. Hmm. This was a radio ad that might run on WTVN in Columbus. And I, I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but it was like a 24 hour period that he he basically was measuring. And he got reached that number in about two hours. Wow. And when, when that happened, he said, I knew immediately I've got a winner here. And, um, and, and basically he built a very substantial business. He raised a large family um, in a very comfortable style based as much as anything on that concept.
1: And that continues today. I mean, and, and, but going back to when he started it was that, as I understand it, that was a bit controversial in the, cleaning industry or in the carpet cleaning industry. Can you tell us why?
3: Uh, very controversial. And for, I'm, I'm not sure that it is looked down on today, but, but it was for a long time. I mean, for the, probably the first 20 years of my career room, room pricers were considered pariahs. And oh. the, the problem with room pricing is that it lends itself to low guy wins and the consequence of that was that uh, the carpet cleaning industry again i'm not sure how prevalent it is today but for uh, for a number of years a lot of companies came into the industry who were basically bait and switch operators they weren't Mm -hmm. really carpet cleaners they go in and they would tell you they'll we'll clean three rooms for $19, you know, whole house for $29. And they had no intention of doing that. They would go, that basically was to get the door open. then they'd go in and they would really hard sell. I I had a sister in Florida, Lori, who called me once, and she had one of them in in her home. Mm. (laughs) And she said... And we were laughing as they did it because I told her exactly what was going to happen. I, she said, <laughs> you know, he came in and he looked at it and he said, well, I, I can do this, but, you know, you really need something more. And then he put this, you need a pre-spray. And, and he put it down and, he, and cleaned the, the spot in the carpet. And he said, now that's going to cost more. And she said, well, what's it cost? And it was like $500. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I think it was at that point that she called me and uh, she, she told me what was going on. I said, I guarantee you, he's going to call his office next and he's going to try and get some, and he's going to talk to the manager who's going to come back with a lower price. Yep. And, yep. <laughs> two minutes later, the sa- you know, that's exactly what happened. So I, I don't want to get too far off on that tangent, but that was the problem, still is potentially the problem with room pricing, is that the lowest guy wins. The reason dad did it is he wanted a way, and he was effective at communicating a way to the consumer, that carpet cleaning was was something that could be done at a reasonable cost. Mm-hmm. It was a big mystery up until that time. And and, you know a reasonable cut, 1995 to clean a a room and a hallway, and 1962 was pretty good money. It wasn't bad. Uh, Thirty bucks to clean a living room, dining room, and hall. If you look at constant dollars, Um, but you know it it was true that that the the um, uh, the the bad guys did come in, and and I will share very quickly. I can't resist um, in part because of a comment that Pete made in, in our uh, show prep about a meeting in California the Lynch squad meeting or something like that <laughs> um, shortly after dad had had the uh, ran the uh, commercials and started booking a lot of work there he was the vice president of the Columbus carpet cleaners Association. And um, they called a special meeting. Um, and he got to the meeting. He he used to describe it. He said, "I was seated in a chair in the middle of a semicircle of of other cleaners, and they basically took turns pointing and shouting at me." He said, <laughs> in particular, he remembered. The guy's name was Denny Dickey. He said he was the president and he said, he said he had spittle on the side. He was, he was so mad. He had spittle on the side of his mouth and his voice was shaking. And he said, you, what you are doing will be the ruination of the carpet cleaning industry. Wow. And that, and to some, that's exactly what happened. Now I don't agree with that, but you know, I got, I got a,
1: technical question or, or two here unless Cliff and Pete Cliff, do you want to jump in or
2: Well no I I'd like to uh hear about the subcontracting idea. Uh and you know and then I want you to tell us about the uh you know about a path your father could have taken. You know, he went left and and West oh. Bates went right. So I, I kinda wanna get into the West Bates if you could.
3: Oh, the, yeah. Okay,
2: okay. So let's do subcontracting and then West Bates.
3: Subcontracting first. Okay. Um, Dad, once he had a model for getting business, he felt he needed a a simple way of keeping his costs consistent. And uh, he also... uh, you know, he was he was kind of a newcomer, even though the company had been around a long time. He had he was kind of the newcomer coming back into the business after being having been away. So he had some um, uh, employees that were younger guys, kind of they were South Enders in Columbus, and um, they he needed some he needed a way to make to 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 build responsible. Uh, workers and his idea was to make them as he would describe it uh, my cleaners were my partners he paid them 50 percent he got the business they did the business and they were technically they were subcontractors Mm -hmm. um, as it's looked at now but his concept was they're my partners and I and because of the way he approached things and also because of his personality he wanted to give them uh, um, a responsibility and, and he was really he was spot on in so many ways uh, because by giving them that responsibility they they working for dad they felt the need to own up to that responsibility and so they built a very uh Uh, long-term workforce. I mean, our guys, I remember when I was first uh, running the carpet cleaning business in the uh, late 1970s. um, Yeah. I think our average, the average worker had been there cleaner contractor had been there over 20 years. Hmm. And so we had a ton of, there was a lot of um, uh, mutual respect and a, a good dynamic, uh, of course, there is a downside to using co- subcontractors. you don't have control if they aren't doing a good job. Um, uh, similar to what happened with room pricing, uh, a lot of the the, the um, bait and switch guys use subcontractors and they use it just so that they could not be responsible for paying people a living wage. Because if okay. I went in as a subcontractor to clean three rooms for 15 bucks, he's, lo- he's losing money. He's not making anything. Um, so, you know, there, there's pros and cons, but it worked really well for Dad. Hey, John, real quick,
1: at that time, how were they cleaning? Was it hot water extraction or was it some variation?
3: Uh, hot water extraction really wasn't developed till the late 1960s, mid to late 1960s. When dad first started, it was all shampoo extraction cleaning. Okay. Uh, there was a machine that dad's company used called a chemstractor. I don't know, Cliff, you probably oh, would yeah. oh a chemstractor. Sure. Pete, yeah. I would imagine you probably used one once upon a time.
2: Yeah, he had to empty it about once a month for what it actually extracted. <laughs> <but>. <laughs>
3: exactly. And exactly.
2: In any event, uh, it, it, was, it was a cool machine for sure.
3: It was, and it it was an interesting, uh, you know, one thing they were really good at is they always, they pile lifted first, and then they, so that they would lift and open the pile, they'd vacuum, uh, and then, you know, did they remove a lot of dirt? No, they really did, but they improved the appearance.
2: Yeah, but I think the shampoo, you know, when it crystallized and they vacuumed it subsequently, I think, you know, in many ways, it's... The industry's kind of gone back in that direction, right. With this very low moisture, and I don't think technically there's been a lot of changes. Although you know now they say it's polymers and so on and so forth. But I don't. I necessarily completely agree. I think the formulations change. So yeah. tell us about uh, your dad's buddy, Wes Bates. I think it's a that's a story worth telling.
3: Well, it was Jack Jack Bates. Wes, I'm sorry, uh, Wes was the
2: son. Okay, right. Jack. Yeah.
3: Is, Jack was a friend of my a drinking buddy of my father's. Uh, he had a company called uh, Jack Bates Mr. Carpet Cleaning, I think was his company. and he also had a car wash, as I recall. but um, and I will tip my hand by saying Jack Bates was the founder of Stanley Steamer. Uh, hmm. Dad was a person who pretty much the person who introduced Jack to steam, quote-unquote, steam cleaning, hot water extraction. It was called steam cleaning at that time. There was a uh, – this was in the late 60s, probably 68 or 69. Dad was the original Steamway distributor and, and used Steamway equipment uh, in Ohio. And there was a bar on the Ohio State campus. Has anybody uh, mentioned that I'm an Ohio State fan, by the way? Or is that gonna, coming later? Well. Thank you, John.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you, John.
2: And thank you, Pete. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, to not, me it sounds like one of those cartoons and all those little <laughs> <laughs> marching around. But Sorry. go ahead.
3: Got to have the whole. You have to have the whole, treatment's lot, Nick. Gotta have the whole Understood.
2: treatment, the Understood.
3: Understood. Um. Anyway, there was a barn at the Ohio State, off of Ohio State's campus called the Agora, and Dad was called to do an estimate, and he decided to go ahead and bring the his Steamway machine and do a demo when he did the estimate, and he was there doing the estimate, and while he was there, Jack Bates happened to walk in, and... Um, um, Dad saw him, and so dad walked over to him and looked at him. And my dad was a pretty charismatic guy and had a pretty funny way about himself. He said, well, Jack, what that's called a steam cleaner. What do you think of it? He said "The Bates, I hope it's okay if I use a, a four-letter word because I'm. Go, <laughs> go for
0: it. No <laughs> problem.
3: It's not a bad one, but uh, I'm, I'm. this is a direct quote. Uh, so Bates kind of looked at for a minute, kind of glared at Dad, and looked back down. I, and they turned to Dad again. And he said, "Jack, that was what he called. He called my dad Jack too." Um, he said, "That piece of shit will never clean anything." And then he <laughs>
0: stormed
3: off. <laughs> <laughs> Within six months, he had his own equipment. I think it was less time than that. Within a year. I believe maybe a year and a half he was building his own equipment and not too long after that uh, he launched the Stanley steamer franchise, maybe a couple years later. So uh, that was one of the areas where Jack Bates, uh got the best of my dad. He got my best of my dad in several things.
2: Hmm. Uh, but the difference is I think both men had the same idea. I think they wanted to, a uh, partner yeah. with people that they could trust and your dad went to the left and
3: dad went he, with subcontractors
2: went went to the right. And, you know, I think they're both good systems, you know, and, uh, you know, today they're, it, it depends how you want to do it, but I, know, I they're, think, they're both successful systems.
3: I think that Bates chose more wisely going with, with, uh, franchises. It Franchise. certainly worked out that way. Uh, for him uh, over the years but you know again everybody has different I mean it it was interesting and Cliff you really picked up on that how you know really they were looking at the same concept and uh, same model and then uh, finding different ways to um, make it work and uh, it really worked well for Bates. Mm
1: -hmm. You know this might be a good time we've got to take a short break and thank our sponsors, and then uh, when we come back, I don't know if we want to start into the rise of the industry associations, Cliff, or if uh, you have some finishing up to do on John's background.
0: No, we good
1: With the rest of our interview with Mr. John Diney. The Buckeye. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. All right, we're back. Second half of our interview, we've got John Downey, the life and times of John Downey. I love it. All right, Cliff, I'm going to take it back to you. I think we're getting ready to start. Thanks. Into-
2: yeah, John, or I'm not sure if you know the answer to this question, but I'm sure you'll know the answer to the second question. You know, you'd mentioned that your dad was involved in a Columbus rug cleaning association. Any idea, you know, why that was formed?
3: No, I don't know. I, okay. I, I really don't know. I um, I would have to speculate that that was kind of a common practice for local associations maybe through the 50s and into the 60s. That would be my, my best guess.
2: Okay. Let's talk about your involvement with associations. Why did, uh, you know, UCCI come about? Because I think it was kind of the similar times that Tri-State came about. You know, why, why did this happen? Why did we need associations?
3: The, I think what spurred the growth of associations was uh Master Carpet. And uh, more specifically, uh, the introduction of Stainmaster Carpet by DuPont. uh, When they introduced it, they they decided they needed to have a national contract to maintain Stainmaster Carpet. And they chose Stanley Steamer to be the exclusive uh, cleaner for Stainmaster Carpet. It's funny. Once again, we're back to Stanley Steamer. We're that Central Ohio Crazy People connection.
1: What year is this, John, ballpark? Uh,
3: 1979, I believe.
0: Uh, in around 1980,
3: okay. 79, 80, maybe even 81. Might have been 81. Um, but the independent carpet cleaners felt... When that happened, they felt um help me with the word um, vulnerable i think would be the and and uh the u c c i the United carpet cleaners Institute formed i mean within six months of of when that was announced, actually probably less time than that, we started meeting and organizing, and within probably six months the u c c i was up and running and it grew to 250 300 members in a pretty short time two or three years Um, prior to that there had also been an ohio carpet cleaners association that was not as strong it pretty much was just a trade show uh, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of it was kind of clicky and when things get clicky then things start to get um political and ugly. So the, U- the UCCI's model, and I suspect tri-state might have been similar, uh, Cliff, and I-, I know that several of the others were, was not to just be a trade show, but to have regular monthly meetings. Uh, the UCCI, we had chapters in, o- in Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati and Toledo and Detroit. And... Um, the idea was to establish, you know, basically cordial relationships with your competitors and, and, and so that you can basically not have all this fear stuff that, that came, came into play. I remember, by the way, I just thought of this early on with UCCI, um, uh, once UCCI was UCCI was started, uh, Stanley Steamer got word of it, and we had a meeting at my father's company's office. And two people one was one was the attorney, and maybe the other was the uh, CFO of Stanley Steamer came to check us out. So they were paying attention to what what the independent carpet cleaners were doing. And we and the independence had a effect, a big effect, because then you get into what happened with Dupont when when the independent guys kind of got together and started uh, talking as one voice to the um, specifically to Dupont, but to the uh, uh, carpet and fiber manufacturers. Uh, about the fact that there's a big industry out there that you guys aren't paying any attention to, and there are thousands upon thousands of us, uh, they changed their tune. They they um, basically decided, you know, we need to be inclusive, not exclusive in what we do. So I think after about a year, they ended that exclusive deal with Stanley Steamer. It still served, uh, served Stanley extremely well. Right, right. Uh, they uh, maybe a year or two. They ended that and and uh, became much more involved in a proactive way in the in the cleaning carbon cleaning industry.
2: You know, my my observation is that you know when Tri-State got started, it was it was before the Stainmaster thing. But I think one of the drivers for Tri-State was. This battle over the word of being able to call it steam cleaning, and because I think the DuraClean folks challenged and said that it wasn't steam, and said that you couldn't use steam in the Yellow Pages, and you know that was one of the primary drivers. I think uh, as well. So I, I guess the observation is that it's good for associations when there's a threat uh, to members and potential members. And it's bad for associations when there's tranquility and there is no threat. So, I mean, that's just an observation. You're, you're I'm not exactly sure, right. I'm I, not sure I, if you agree with it uh, or, or you don't. Well, how did you become an activist?
3: You know, this may sound funny, but I don't consider myself an activist. I, I, do, I just, I mean, I, I certainly can understand why others view me that way. but. And I've thought about this. The way I I've been blessed in many ways. I I've also found myself. I put myself, uh, especially with Clean Facts, in a position of responsibility. In a position where um, I knew things. I had beliefs about right and wrong. And I was in a position where I could kind of see what was really going on. And when I saw things that were going on that I felt were wrong, I. You called it out. I called. Yeah, I just I, I just I. What is it my kids say? Um, Tell them your truth, dad. Tell them your truth.
2: So, I think if you lived in Chicago, they might call you a carpet cleaning organizer or something. Like
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I, you know, it's just been something where I have felt at times a responsibility to speak up. And I've fortunately had a platform. And so I guess I can see that I would be uh, viewed as a um, rabble rouser i i' I've, I've got a little bit of spunk in me as well, so that's probably part of it
2: well how did you end up um how'd you end up in the publishing business
3: yeah. well, that was because of u c c i it it's a it's a great story um here I am patting myself on the back it's a great story uh, it's, it's a great story in the sense of um you, you never know what's going to happen. You think you know your path, and then all of a sudden it changes completely, and we all need to remember that. As I mm-hmm. told you earlier, I thought I would just grow up and take over the family business, and, and um, that would be my path, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, I left the family company. I, I don't know that we have time to get into that story, but I left the family company. Uh, in maybe 82 or 3, and I was the founding vice president of the UCCI. And the UCCI vice, vice president's job was to publish the association newsletter. And by the way, the UCCI got their bylaws from the carpet CFI or CCI. CCI. DCI in California. And we just followed their bylaws and their bylaws said vice president's job is publish the newsletter. So I started doing that. I had no grand ambitions. I, you know, it was just a responsibility, but I found I enjoyed doing it. And the board liked what I did. And so they started giving, they gave me more money <laughs> to grow it into a larger Uh, newsletter and and in time it became a small magazine Uh, and um, when it became uh, this small magazine uh, we had to generate advertising in order to defray the costs of it and on a regional basis you could not justify uh, the 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 amount for advertising against the cost for publication. So I came up with the idea of taking what had become Clean Facts. It started out with as a UCCI newsletter. Then we became Clean Scene or Cleaning Scene. Uh, and then, you know, and then it became Clean Facts. And the FAX was just because at that time, fax machines were new and trendy. So we wanted to be cool. Uh, so I went to the UCCI Board of Directors. I said, I want to take this national. With your blessing, and I initially I asked them if they wanted to take it national. But they didn't have that ambition, so I said I take it national. We will have regional editions uh, for each part of the country with regional content. The national part of the magazine would be the same everywhere, and we would recruit regional trade associations to be uh, sponsors of the different regional editions and of course UCCI was the first regional association sponsor and that's where it, it just kind of came from there just kind of happened
1: and you you never envisioned being a writer you didn't i don't if I'm not mistaken you didn't go to college for that or I mean how did you end up I mean you are now a a terrific writer um I'm just curious how did you get better at that
3: i think I think, you know, honestly, I think that you credit God or genetics or whatever. I mean, I, I had a knack for writing. I never really developed. I never really recognized. I can tell you, actually, I, I did recognize it, but it was after I graduated high school. I was working in the family business. I, read, I sent a letter to somebody. I can't even remember what it was about, and it just came together really well. And I, that was me. I was, hmm. <laughs> I, <really> like that. <laughs> I did but, that. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, I, I took course. You know, honestly, I, I tell people all the time, I, I can't even diagram a sentence. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, uh, a, a I can diagram one now, but I don't like to. But I, I mean, I was a, at best, a C student in English and um, uh, composition in high school. Uh, I, I took some classes, some college classes uh, in journalism and, and, and frankly, English okay. uh, in order to um, know what I knew. But it, it came naturally. It just came naturally. And I worked at it. And, um, you you know, well,
1: we had to work at it.
3: Some so things on. that you do give you energy. Other things you do drain energy writing gives me energy.
2: Hmm. John, tell us about the seven year cycle of a publication.
3: Well, the, the, um, actually it came from national review. It was, um, something I, I read about in national review, which I've been a subscriber to national review since the mid 1970s. And, um, in National Review, they they talked about the fact that a magazine, uh, basically, there's a they should have a life of its own, and there's about a seven year cycle uh, uh, in a magazine. That if you go beyond that or too far beyond that, uh, it becomes stale. There's a need for new blood. You you need to treat a publication. N- I always looked at Clean Facts as, as being almost like one of my children. Mm-hmm. It was something I birthed, but it wasn't me. And I think I was in part successful because I looked at it that way. Um, it needed to have its a life of its own, and it did. So, you know, I when I started Clean Facts, I started it with the end in mind that it would be about a seven year gig for me. Uh, and then it needed to find a you know a, a, a new home It needed to go out and, and do more. It ended up being uh nine years i think uh, but it, it really it worked out that way
2: you know th- this is probably the most important question I think i'm gonna ask you or anyone else is going to ask you today. Can you define entrepreneurial omnipotence?
3: <laughs> I I maybe I would equate it with foolhardiness.
2: Uh, <laughs> well I, I think they're different.
3: Well, um I saw your comment about that and I, I'm not um I'm I I'm not sure I do am able to answer that. I I, I say that um in part because out of embarrassment, but uh, I in I don't think there is such a thing as entrepreneurial on, omnipotence. I I know in my case, uh, and it was after I after I sold Clean Facts, and I made a lot of money uh, with Clean Facts, including uh, when I ran it and also when I sold it. Uh, but and it's why I kind of go to the foolhardiness. You know I. I found myself um, trying to do things business-wise to satisfy or help others, but they were not really my passion. And so, you know, when you ask that question, I, I'm kind of thinking and as I'm, I'm speaking, uh, to me – Um, entrepreneurial omnipotence is finding your passion. And if you find your passion and work in in that area of where you have a passion, as an entrepreneurial, as an entrepreneur, you'll be successful. But when you you wander outside of that area, at least for me, uh, it was very easy to get lost, which I kind of did for about, at least five years, five years or more, Does that address what you're talking about or
2: no I, I, I think you did, and I think you did it really in, in, a, in a unique way. Um, you know what i the point that I was trying to get to was the this the fact that we're successful at doing something once we automatically somehow think that um, we're going to be successful at everything we do.
3: And that's,
2: you're right. And, yeah, I think what happens is sometimes, I think it's like gambling almost. You know, when you win a bet, you then, well, you know, I'm, I'm really smart, you know. And I think what happens is, you know, because you have one success, you think it's transferable to other industries. And I think it's a rude awakening uh, sometimes when you find out it's not. But I, I do have another question that I'd like to, to ask you um and it it's kind of personal, but um tell me about uh, you, you know the, the feeling that you were adversely affecting your wife's health i'd like to talk about that
3: so I mentioned earlier that i that uh Cecilia and I have nine kids, and um after I had sold clean facts and I, I did a few things related to the family business, made really stupid decisions. As you said, I, I, you're exactly right. I, now that I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I suffered that, uh, uh, delusion of omnipotence. Uh, but I then, um, I started working with my brother, Mike on, uh, he invented a hot water extraction machine called a High Flow Extractor. The name of the machine and the company was Steam and Demon. And I started working with Mike, and um, I did have success working with Mike. Especially when <laughs> i hate to say this after Mike had a heart attack and and kind of got out of the business, and I was kind of running it on my own. We were able to do some things, but I'll tell you what, it was a really difficult business. Really difficult. And I found myself on the road uh, two and three weeks out of the month. Um, and, you know, I was doing workshops for facilities. Steam and Demon's primary market is in the commercial cleaning world. Uh, buildings of various sorts, hospitals, schools, etc. And so I was working with janitorial companies and, and um, building service contractors and, and in-house people, but I was traveling all the time. And in the meantime, my wife, the mother of nine children, when mm-hmm. I'm on the road, she has to be both mother and father. And I'll tell you what, with any family, that's difficult. But with, with nine kids, and by the way, I don't think I mentioned it, most of them at that time were teenagers, mm-hmm. and teenagers mm-hmm. are. <laughs> And she, she had a um, a serious uh, health crisis. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what it was, uh, but she was having seizures and um, a, a variety of different ailments. And uh, I remember, you know, she was in a hospital room uh licking memorial hospital my local area and the doctor said you know what there really isn't much that we can do for i mean she's just overloaded she is she is overloaded and um she was asleep in the bed and i just looked at her and i didn't say anything to her directly at the time but i just i I knew right then i i was killing my wife Mm -hmm. and i had to make a change and uh I decided then and there, and I never looked back um uh, to make a change i i i I got rid of i got out of the steam and demon business I started a small company in uh in my hometown of granville ohio uh owner operator carpet cleaning company, so that I would not be gone all the time uh that and uh you know that you know regardless of anything else. You know, we she needed the support of a husband who was there, mm-hmm. and um, so that's that's what I did. I, th- there were some unpleasant financial consequences from that decision, but I don't, honest to God, I don't regret it at all. I mean, that's uh, it's some things are more important than others.
2: Understood. Understood.
3: All yeah, right, how about- let's go to the roundup.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I think we ought to bring in the restoration industry's global watchdog. I'm sure he's been uh chomping at the bit there, ready to jump in here. Pete, what do you have to say, buddy? Hey, well, I've been, I've been, I've been typing the text
4: messages, and I made my notes on an IICRC pad just out of I'm not sure why I did it. It was just a fear. But look, I oh, I got a list, but I'm gonna go through it quick. You know, the in the in the little write up that we did for the show, and of course there's so much in there you couldn't cover in an hour, you had talked about that you had a relationship with Dan Sullivan as a strategic coach, and that was probably in the nineties, a couple of years after Clifford first found that guy. He's from Canada and he uh, brought him to Restorex conference, and he talked he defined an entrepreneur. And he said, an entrepreneur is someone who never relies on anyone else for their livelihood. And the key to an entrepreneur was, is you give customers what they want. You hire people to take care of the customers to give them what they want. You'll have a successful business. The key thing is the entrepreneur gets paid last. A lot of business owners don't realize that you get paid last. The guys that want to pull the money out of the company, just because they can, will never have a successful company. He, he, He was an interesting guy because he talked about you, people spend too much time trying to improve things that they're, that they're kind of weak at, and they don't spend enough time doing what they're really good at. So his argument was spend, spend twice as much time on your strengths and moderate amounts of time on your weaknesses. He says it takes 21 days to change a habit, and the key is you can only do one habit at a time. That was, it, that was his key pitch. Now, when Dina Dwyer – you know, the daughter of the founder of uh, rainbow and Dwyer and that whole group. I remember when she was the keynote at the RAA about three or four years ago, she said something similar when she said, one of the keys to success was to hire your weakness. Entrepreneurs hire the people who, who do, can do what they can't, but yet that smart person maybe smarter than the entrepreneur. Couldn't run a business. Our, our buddy, Completely. there, me and Cliff. He ran his business like that. He he had that. He called it his Kentucky sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you. Uh, when I was listening to you about the subcontracting stuff with your dad, you know, I, I wondered, and we and we talked. We had this kind of offline. Ed York wrote in in the early days of the SCT. He had these manuals. And you got a set of manuals when you joined the SCT in the 70s. They were all color-coded by marketing, management, operations, you know, all this stuff. And he had one in there called the Associates Program, which was a concept of three things. You had what was called a procurement company, which is what your dad was, a sales company. They'd go get the work. Then the production company would be the workers who so they'd make them, you know, their own bosses. And then they would do these splits, 50-50, 60-40, 50, whatever it was. So it was a three-part series. When I read your story about that, I'm wondering, did Ed York come up with that idea? Or did your dad and your dad, did did York steal the idea from your dad? Or did they both, independent of each other, just come up with the idea? Because it was really a fabulous idea. It was the way in the New York market that the restoration guys, they called them captive subs. That's how they built that entire market in the New York City market. A lot of guys that we know, all in New England and the Northeast in the restoration area. But the roots started in the carpet cleaning. Uh, so I always thought that was interesting. Was it York or Downey senior? The room pricing thing is unbelievable. I, matter of fact, Cliff, there was a guy from Indiana called Bob Keller. He was a lunatic. If you were oh, in yeah, the, I know. In a good way. I know. And he, there was a guy who came into his town that had 1995, a room written all over the truck. Right. And at an old ASCR convention one day, he's telling me the story that that guy's not around anymore. I said, what happened, Bob? He said, well, I showed up to his house at two o'clock in the morning with a shotgun and I said, he'll be out of town by noon tomorrow. This is a true story, folks. You can't make it up <laughs> or, or and there'll be no 1995 cleaning in this town. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the lynch mob thing, I, I had that that story that you told about the, the, the Columbus carpet cleaning group, the way they basically gave your dad the, the Spanish inquisition. I experienced that with Ed York and a bunch of friends of ours, I won't mention their names, uh, protect, protect the innocent. <laughs> but what happened is they, all the bigwigs that started the, the CCI, which are California, uh, is California, now a CFI. And a lot of those guys were past ASCR, you know, big guys in ASCR back in the day. They were rabid about these room guys and, and, and the upsell and the bait and switchers. I mean, they were really unbelievable. And uh, we'll leave it at that, but I tell you, I got some stories over over a drink we could talk about back in those days that were a riot, and York was right in the middle of all of it. Um, one of the things, John, that was really something that I was really struck by and when I read your story is how you, were, you learned a lot as a young whippersnapper kid. You were the boss, and the guys who reported to you were the old pros that had worked for your dad for years. Well, I grew up in the industry in the 70s when I moved past you know my janitorial roots and I got into the cleaning and then discovered the associations I worked for a couple guys like that too the first company that I ever worked for was Schaefer and Mr. Schaefer was the president for the first two years of the founding of NERC which is the founding company of REA that we know today it was up in the hill in Stamford, Connecticut Triple S Steve DeMarco eventually bought it for the main competitors but um, I, I've always valued those days that were really amazing. What we learned with those, with those old cronies, and uh, how we, as young whippersnappers, we didn't think they knew much, and we could teach teach them everything. And boy, were we, how wrong we were! Um, and then there was an old pro that I met one day in a building that uh, was an ex-fireman. Ex-firemen were big in this business, in both restoration and carpet cleaning. And I, I remember I ran into him one day in a janitorial contract it was a big high profile building in downtown Stamford, Connecticut. And uh, he said, Oh, you're, you're the young kid that's trying to steal the carpet cleaning contract from me. Like, little did I know at the, at the time that the, the people who ran these big buildings didn't trust the carpet cleaning to the janitor, even if you were the best janitor in the world. And let me tell you, I started out, it was a pretty damn good one. That was a big lesson. We became buddies. He was the guy who told me about York SCT and, and, as as RAA was known in the day, the Association of Interior Decor Specialists, I went to my first uh, SET convention in 1976 in the Wagon Wheel in Rockford, Illinois. That's a Cliff Hatter restorics guy there, Stephen Gitz, I think it is. Yeah. And then uh, the very my very first convention for the RAA was 1977 in the Sheridan, Bell Harbor in Miami Beach, and the first table I sat with that I met the first then was the original Buzz DeHonian, Dehonian, the Buzz's original dad, Armin. Armin. And and, uh, they welcomed you, because back in those days, all the newcomers got to sit with the old-timers, you know, in the welcome reception, and you were kind of indoctrinated into the association. You don't see that much anymore, but I always appreciated that. You know, now, I want to kind of talk about York. You know, I, downy you made me laugh. I put it up there in the chat when you said you don't think you're an activist. What a bunch of BS that is. You know, as a matter of fact, it reminds me of a, of an old scene in a Steven Seagal movie when he he was uh, almost killed, and he's being nursed back by the old Indian chieftain. And the Indian chieftain uh, compliments him or says something and compares him to the bear, and he goes, oh, no, no, he's all humble, I'm not like that. And the old Indian chieftain says, yes, that's exactly what the bear would say. You saying you're not an activist is the biggest <laughs> understatement I, I ever heard. We all know that you, me, Zlatnik, although Cliff has his own viewpoint in this, we're descendants of the tree of York. Ed York was the original activist, the original guy, uh, you know, in our industry. And when you were talking about Staymaster, he, he wrote an article called Carpetland. Land. This thing never got published. But I, I, I saw it. I visited him one day up in the mountain in Camas, Washington, towards his last days, and he was so mad. And he wrote this thing called Carpetland. and he talked about Carpetland and about the magic coat in the kingdom. And it disrupted happy Carpet Land. It was so cutting-edge and so satirical and funny. It was a riot. Now, I don't know why the industry – I mean, Howard Orlansky, when he gave it to him at ICS, I mean – I almost thought he was gonna kind of have a heart attack. I said, you know, I said, Howard, oh, you mean it's it's it? You, you know, come on, give me a break. Uh, I don't know, ever know what happened to that thing, but boy, that, he he was something. So I think he was the inspiration for the great debate. You didn't talk about the great debate when Cliff asked it, but anything you did, the great debate was probably the the, the I th- I think it was the predecessor to the commission in the Donny Brooks that REA started all those years ago. It was fabulous. The, the one. Great debate, if you recall, was when the first S-500 was coming out, there was this battle between the old ASCR and, and the IICRC. And Denny Jensen and Larry Cooper had the great debate, should it be a standard or is it a guideline, which we found out was a moot point anyway at the end of the day. And and I remember the feature, the great feature about that thing was that you each stated your position, then they looked at the position and they did a rebuttal without knowing. the rebuttal is what made the great debate great. So I approached Downey in the years, Cliff, when when I when I was working with Dryes. And I and I wanted to, I wanted to debate myself in the magazine. He thought I was crazy. I'm <laughs> the only guy in the history of clean facts that debated himself. Pete Kinsigly debated G Pete Kinsingly. I did both parts of the position and I did the rebuttal. Now, what happens is we I I was back in those line. days. You're what?
3: the only one I could
4: imagine doing that. <laughs> and nobody could do it. So, so what happens is I'm I'm out I'm out one day back when I did the big huge tours for Drye's, and back in those days they used to send the brochures out, so everybody in the country knew where I wasn't what town, right? And I would get calls from guys like Ron Tony, Mike Schuler, <laughs> wake me up in the middle of the night. But Barry Costa called me one time, and he left a voice message, and he goes, "Hey Pete," he says. I, I read the great debate. He said, I read the first side and I agree with it. And then he goes, I read the second side and agree with that too. He said, he, he said, you're a schizophrenic consultant. I never <laughs> thought of it like that. But, but anyway, I, I guess that, that was cool. That the it, it, It's too bad that something like that really doesn't exist in the industry. I, I think it should, you know, in the social media age you're in, I don't know, but I, I always thought that that was fabulous. And that was kind of the beginning John, I really appreciate, you know, I wrote for you. You're the first guy I wrote for, my first article, uh, The Restoration Technician's Art and Soul of Many Company. And uh, I was always loyal to Clean Facts, and I I, I never, ever wrote for any other magazines besides CNR because I kind of figure, you know, you go with the guys that brought you to the dance. (laughs) (laughs) When you sold Clean Facts, you broke my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So... Down he takes me up to the guy Humphrey that he sold the magazine to. They're in Albany. I say, "Hey, uh, John, I'm going to drive up there and we're going to meet him." About five minutes in the office, I asked him his editorial policy. And he was a nice guy, read a big empire. But he basically said, um, "Well, they, they sit on the top of the fence. They don't want to take a position one way or the other because they don't want to piss off the advertisers." And I'm going, "Oh well, I'll never write for this guy, you know," which I never did. Of course, two years later. He sold the magazine and uh, Jeff cross became editor and we were back in the game again. And that was always a good thing. Uh, and I think Jeff, Jeff has really done a wonderful job of carrying on a legacy legacy of clean facts. Um, you know, when you, uh, I guess in closing to tie it into the breaking news of the day, which we really haven't talked about cliff, but back in the nineties, you used to do the clean facts man of the year and you went out on the edge, you know, you you recognize some of the, the old cronies. We won't say who they are. They're not particularly favorites of guys like me and Clip, but that's okay. But they're industry guys, and they did their due, and you honored them. You were an honest broker. Um, and a lot of times they kind of became the group to then, you know, get the next guy, right? Um, but I remember one year, and I, I don't think you did this every year. You listed me in there as an honorable mention. It was the year that Joe Polish uh, won the award. And you listed me as an honorable mention and you specifically said based on the work that I tried to do in the nineties to to bring together the ASCR and the IICRC. And it's funny in the late nineties, Sue Valente, who's on this call when she ran that big um the that healthy uh, indoor indoor and healthy environments before IAQA, her and Glenn Fellman ran that for that publication I work for. Me and Tommy Akebelis won their service award for the same kind of deal that they recognized us and Tommy for trying to bring the industry together, right? And um, I, 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 I I always remember that. My, my point is, is that what I learned out of that, and I had very close friends of mine, I won't mention their names, but very close friends of me and Cliff that told me they said, you know, Pete, that that work is all well and good, and you, um, you know, we admire you for doing it, but it's like riding two horses, and if you ride two horses, eventually you get pulled apart. And at the end of the day, neither group really appreciates what you did because they don't know where you stand. And I had true friends tell me that, so it wasn't BS. So what I learned from that, as I came back from my sabbatical in the early part of the 21st century is you got to choose the horse you're going to ride and you got to ride that horse. And uh, with me, that was REA. I guess the roots of you recognizing me for doing that was part of a process that ultimately led to the MOU that was announced at the convention the other day to unify the industry. So many of us have worked for so long to make that happen. And uh, that was a good day. So time will tell what's going to happen. You know, like my mom taught me, you know, uh, age is a a function of time, but youth is a state of mind. So...
1: (laughs) Well said.
4: I wish I wish we'll all remain forever young in our heart. So anyway, I, I really enjoyed reading your mini series. That that whole deal was unbelievable. <laughs> my little commentary in there really I really had a strategy for that. We 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 could do a show. <laughs> it was amazing. I learned a lot of stuff about you that I didn't know, and and
3: probably some of my little color commentary kind of did the same. So. Anyway, um, what, one thing, one thing real quick, the great debate, and I agree with you, it was really the signature uh, um, part of clean facts that, that described it, but it didn't come from New York, it didn't come from the industry, it came from National Review, because they used to do debates in National Review, I even followed the same format, as what National Review had, so yeah, no, I didn't mean it came from York.
4: I meant the the spirit of York, uh, you know, may have had something to do with it. But you're spirit. right. Back back in the day, uh, with Tucker Carlson, all those guys, they used to do the debates. You know, when they used to be on CNN before Fox was around, and and then if you remember Saturday Night Live, they had that dialogue with Chevy Chase and uh, Jane Curtin, but they they used to do a a, a mimic and comic it that, about you know doing that. that. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, it was it was a fa- it was fabulous the way you packaged it, John. It was the highlight of the clean facts. And I think uh, it it served the, is- the issues of the day in the '90s. You're way ahead of your time. Anyway, Joe Cliff, I know we ran over. I appreciate the indulgence. I'll turn it back to you, boys.
1: Thank you, Pete. Um, before we go, John, I, I you know Pete mentioned this memorandum of understanding. I wonder if you could comment on that before we go. I guess IICRC and RIA. Have finally uh, come to some kind of agreement. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that.
3: Well, um, I guess the, in the big picture, I think it's 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 a a welcome development and something that I hope will bear fruit long term. Uh, RIA or I, RIA's predecessor. AS, I think it was ASCR at that time, and, yep. and and IICRC have played together at times, and 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 then things have fallen apart. I hope that doesn't happen. I have talked uh, at length with the person that if if the if the IICRC, if I'm sorry, excuse me, if Clean Facts still had a person of the year, the person of the year for 2019 would be Mark Springer who is uh, the person who, whose determination is the reason for this agreement. I give the IICRC credit for engaging with Mark and engaging with RIA. I don't know enough about the details to comment on that, but I know Mark's heart and where Mark is coming from and he's a new generation guy. He's the next generation, and the main thing I want would want to say about it is, let's give it a chance. Let's 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 put aside history and 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 you know what I was just saying that there've been things in the past. Let's put that aside and give it a chance. Um, you know, the IICRC has agreed to to partner with RIA on some things. I hope as much as anything, I hope it's just a start because that sort of thing, um, it has been needed in the industry on a variety of levels for a long time. So, uh, I'm, I'm heartened by it. I'm really glad for Mark. I know how much he put into it. Um, and you know, time will tell, but let's, let's pray it all goes well and develops even more.
2: Cliff, before we go, any
1: final thoughts?
2: Um, yeah, there's one. I have one other question for you, John. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, in our industry and in life, uh, you know, this, this, this term workaholic comes up, and a lot of times, you know, people bear it as some sort of badge of honor. And I know that, um, you know, after reading your words on it, you kind of have a different opinion and I I would just like you to just lay it out.
3: Being a workaholic is an affliction. It's no less of an affliction than alcoholism or drug abuse or anything else, not anything else. Uh, They're all different afflictions and, and we, we bring them on ourselves. Uh, I am, <laughs> I'm a workaholic. I'd like to think I'm in recovery. Right. However, I'm working my butt off.
0: Understood. Right. Job. So,
3: but it's as much as anything, it's a state of mind. And, um, uh, the workaholic loses so much of important of the important things in life because he is so addicted to that, uh, process of business, the thrill of, of, you know, making the sale, doing this or that or the other. And no, I don't, anybody that tells me pridefully that they're a workaholic, uh, I, I'd slap them upside the head and say, hey, hey, get over that. That's not a good thing. We 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 need balance in our lives. Our If our work is number one in our life, and too often it's been for me, um, we're missing the important things. I agree.
1: Thanks for asking that. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. John Boney I tell you, it's been a, a fascinating and uh, interesting week, just learning more about you and then uh, capped off with today's interview. Thanks for joining us. Thank you,
3: Joe.
1: This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest, John Donnie, of course, to the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik, Pete, consigli the restoration industry's global watchdog john you got to have faith that the controls most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners i will be on the road next week uh, we're not going to have a show next week but in two weeks we will be back and i think that's when we have the uh the show lined up with ed cross and, and some of the restoration industry groups so we'll be talking a lot more about that uh, big announcement that came out this week where ria and iICRC are going to be working together and uh Look forward to updating listeners a little more on that in two weeks from today when we return for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.